Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 24th, 2014, and I want to remind listeners that we have expanded the content at econtalk.org. In addition to the regular episodes with links and additional readings, Amy Willis of Liberty Fund and I have been adding discussion questions to check your knowledge and deepen it, along with some postmortems on some of the episodes. So please check those out and write us at mail at econtalk.org with any reaction to this new material. My guest today is Diane Coyle. Her latest book is GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History. Her website is enlightenmenteconomics.com, where she posts book reviews and does lots of other interesting things, including consulting. Diane, welcome back to EconTalk. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. Our topic for today is your book, GDP, which is a lovely introduction to what might be a tedious topic, but your book is anything but tedious. Uh, let's start with the basics, though. What is GDP? GDP is a measure of the um, amount of economic activity measured at market prices. It's the number that allows policymakers setting um, the level of tax and spend or setting interest rates to get their arms around how quickly or otherwise the economy is expanding. And it's been around in its present form for uh, just a bit over 60 years. Yeah, and it it stands for gross domestic product. Uh, When I was in graduate school, we talked about GNP, gross national product. What's the difference between the two? The difference is income received from overseas or income sent overseas. So gross domestic product measures activity within the national boundary and gross national product measures um, all the additional uh, income or activity that is due to people who live in a country but are earning the money overseas. And the reason they, uh, the GMP became GDP was because the focus switched to what it was that policymakers felt they, they could steer using macroeconomic policy. And also because for many countries and for a number of decades, the gap wasn't very big. More recently, it's grown again. There are some countries that get a lot of interest earnings from overseas and others that get a lot of remittances sent from migrants overseas. But we're still using gross domestic product. Who invented the idea? The origins go back as, uh, as far as you like, really, as back to the dawn of capitalism. The potted history is that in the late 17th century, um, a Briton called William Petty started to try to count up national income, the purpose being to help the monarch understand what the tax base, how much taxes he was likely to be able to raise to fight foreign wars. And it actually proved a great advantage to Britain in its almost constant wars with France in that period to um, to have that information because they uh, were much more able to to raise the funds and raise the troops than their opponents were. The concept changed a lot over time. The interest later became um, what overseas earnings could the country bring in and, and how much gold would that bring in. But it wasn't until the 1930s and the Great Depression that anything remotely resembling modern GDP came into existence. And there were two people uh, usually named as being at the forefront of that effort, Simon Kuznets in the United States and Colin Clark in Great Britain. 
what they were trying to do was give their respective governments an idea of how badly the economy was doing during the Great Depression. There'd been ups and downs in trade, of course, isn't that the, the Victorian era was a very unstable era in, in the economy, but nobody expected the government to do anything about it in the 19th century. It wasn't until the 1930s and the scale of the uh, economic hardship in the Great Depression that anybody thought the government should do anything, and that's when the government thought it better get a handle on what was happening. There were lots of industrial statistics. There were even the beginnings of unemployment statistics, but not any modern economic aggregates. So that's when the effort started. What uh, became a gross domestic product actually then came to fruition in the Second World War, led by John Maynard Keynes in the British Treasury. And it had a very specific aim, which was to work out um, what was available for the war effort and what sacrifice civilians were going to have to make in their consumption in, in order to divert enough resources and material towards producing for the war effort. So it had that very specific military purpose. But then subsequently co-evolved with Keynes's macroeconomics and the national accounts developed in the same categories that he was using in his thinking about the macroeconomy. So modern GDP as we use it now dates from 1941. That's a long way of answering a short question. Well, we could spend the rest of the time actually just trying to answer the question of, of what it actually is. I, I found one of the things I found very stimulating about the book is that on the surface, it's a very straightforward idea. Uh, when I would, if you asked me to describe what's GDP to a non-economist, I'd say, well, it's kind of simple. You just you just pile up all the goods and services and you you count what their value is. Uh, but it doesn't quite work out as simply as that. For especially if you want to make comparisons over time, which is what we're often interested in, we don't really understand what it means to put a dollar value on GDP today. What we're really interested in often is whether it's growing and by how much. But the stuff in that pile is different every year. So how do you make that comparison and how do the statisticians uh, try to deal with that? There's a great example recently of how much difference that can make uh, with the announcement by the Nigerian government that its GDP was 89% higher than they had thought the day before. And what they were doing was what's called rebasing the GDP statistics. And in countries like the US and the UK, what happens is every five years, the statisticians will calculate how much of the economy is contributed by all the different industries. And they grow and decline over time. So in 1900, there would have been quite a large weight on the horse-drawn carriage-making industry, and it would have a zero weight now. And obviously, you need to change those weights to reflect the way the economy changes. In Nigeria, that hadn't happened for a very long time, and it certainly hadn't happened since before the Nollywood film industry grew up and before mobile phones became such an important sector of the economy. This is true of a lot of developed countries. Ghana made a similar move last year. Others are now lining up to increase their GDP in the same way. And I think what this highlights is um, our misconception, really, that measuring the economy is like measuring the height of a mountain or the length of a river. There's no natural object out there. This is, um, this is a, a concept, and it involves lots of judgment, and, and it changes a lot over time. And to get to your question specifically, there's a way in which you can never capture effects of innovation over time in any GDP statistics. Nathan Mayer Rothschild, richest man in the world at the time, died of an ulcer on his tooth because antibiotics hadn't been invented. What value could you possibly put 
behind the, um, the invention of an antibiotic that costs maybe $10 today. And that sort of innovation is um, simply not counted properly or can't possibly be counted in GDP statistics. Well, one of the themes, so, one of the themes of your book is the value of, of choice and the expansion of products and services that are available, the richness in the modern world that we take totally for granted when we go to the grocery store, uh, when we hire someone to do uh, some kind of activity for us, some kind of service. Uh, we don't just buy a pair of sneakers or a pair of shoes, right? We don't just compare to, say, 100 years ago. Uh, we don't just go to a doctor. We go to a specialist. It's very narrowly defined. And as you point out, the GDP statistics have a tough time dealing with that. They do try to deal with it a little bit, though, in when they measure uh, pricing. Because one of the changes, the, one of the challenges, of course, is you care about real GDP. You care about correcting for inflation. You want to know what your actual command over goods and services is relative to, say, five or ten or one year ago. And so you've got a big challenge because the quality of the product and the diversity of the products are changing. So talk about uh, hedonics and how uh, they try to control for quality changes as best they can in the statistical measures. That's exactly right. The point being that if you spend $2,000 on a laptop today, it will have much better characteristics than a laptop that you might have bought three or five years ago. It will have built-in camera and Wi-Fi and a much better screen resolution and more memory and be faster and so on. So when they're calculating price indices for uh, goods like that, they will um, do, a, do a regression essentially of the price on different kinds of characteristics to try and work out how much of the change in price or absence of change in price, as it were, is due to the better characteristics and how much of it is is um, normal inflation. And that goes part of the way to answering this question about how do you take account of, of innovation, but not the whole way. If you think about how much computer power has increased over that past half century, it's it's many, many more times than they have adjusted for in the prices. If you wanted to... Um, have the equivalent in a 1946 computer of your smartphone now, you'd have something that was the size of a, a half a dozen aircraft carriers. And that kind of technical change simply isn't able to be captured in the statistics. So they do, they do their best with electronic goods and also with housing, where the quality of the housing stock has improved a lot over time. But there's a limit to how far the statisticians can um, make adjustments for these incredible changes in quality and the pace of innovation. Well, you could spend a lifetime <clears throat> trying to accurately estimate those the value of those changes. But as you point out in the book, at a number of places, it's not just that a laptop today is 4.7 laptops of, say, 8 to 10 years ago, which is essentially what they're doing when they try to make those price changes. They're crudely trying to estimate how much more laptop you have, which you know is inherently – ambiguous. But your other point, which I think, which I found very provocative because I hadn't thought enough about it, is that what is a laptop isn't well-defined at all. Where I'm doing this episode with, with you on my 15-inch MacBook Pro, which I use for podcasting because it has a very good microphone that allows you to hear me. And I also use it for photos and other things, where I, word processing where I have a large screen. But other times I use my 11-inch MacBook Air, which is a smaller machine, but they're both called laptops. Now, that fact that I have two to choose from, and of course, there are people who don't like either one of those and choose a different laptop. Uh, there are people who want an iPad, which is really a laptop, but 
kind of a smaller one, or a cell phone, they all start to merge together. We love, we value that diversity, and yet that kind of gets lost in the statistical shuffle. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's obviously very striking when you think about these uh, high technology goods or about something like uh, medical products or, or pharmaceuticals where the changes are, are dramatic. But this is true even of apparently trivial changes too. Um, one of my favorite examples is a TV program called The 1900 House that went out in 1999. Love that show. And <laughs> the program makers sent a normal family back to live as they would have in 1900. So the woman of the house had to do all the um, laundry, heating up the water by hand, scrubbing the clothes by hand, preparing all the meals from scratch and so on. Really hard work because of all the innovations in, in domestic machinery. But the thing that nearly made her give up the show was that she couldn't get her hair clean because shampoo hadn't been invented. <laughs> she wasn't allowed to use any shampoo. And even these seemingly trivial things bring great benefits to consumers. And that's the kind of benefit that isn't captured, isn't intended to be captured in the GDP statistics. Yeah, the American version of that is called Frontier House, which I think is set in the 1870s. Yeah. Even more brutal uh, in terms of all the participants – now, these are both uh, reality shows for public television where you watch these people from today act like – play by the rules of the past other than medicine because otherwise they, the shows would have problems with people dying. Mm -hmm. Medicine and dentistry, I suppose, are the two uh, exceptions. We, nobody really wants to have their tooth pulled with a pair of pliers and no, no anesthesia but other than maybe a, a glass of, um, of whiskey – so these shows, I mean, the people in the 1870, the Frontier House, when they would have died, all of them, they weren't prepared for the skills they needed, obviously, to live and just survive a winter on the prairie of America in 1870. Um, and, and this is very illuminating, isn't it? These shows, when you think about the, the criticisms of, of growth, what people are saying when they're saying, uh, let's have a limit to growth, is let's, let's stop this kind of innovation and... Actually, innovation is growth. That's what it's all about. And in GDP, we have a, a set of measures that are really ideal for an economy that mass produces things and where variety doesn't matter. And we now have an economy where variety is everything and innovation is driving, is driving growth at a great pace these days. But as you point out in the book, there are, there are a lot of critics of GDP because, as you alluded to just now, it, it implies – a sort of gross materialism, that the goal of life is to make the pile of stuff bigger and bigger. But it's that's in many ways a misplaced criticism you seem to be saying. I think it is, not only because most, the great majority of uh, the economic activity in leading countries like the US these days is, is in services and intangible items. It's, it also completely underestimates, I think, this the value that people place on choice and variety. And, and the trivia matter as well. Jerry Hasman at MIT famously looked at the consumer benefit of the introduction of the apple cinnamon flavor of Cheerios. And it was, uh, I think it was two or three hundred million dollars a year. And for one cereal flavor, that's a, that's a big number. People really value the ability to, um, to shape their own lives through choice. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I really believe that number for the, mm -hmm. for the Cheerios. Uh, we talk a lot about Apple on this program from time to time anyway, and Apple-flavored stuff doesn't come up that often, but that's very nice. Um, he's done a lot of other interesting work on, on the challenges of measuring the consumer price index accurately, which again are related to these kind of questions. Given these uh, concerns, uh, what is your take on the 
a stagnation argument that people say that you know we're not making any progress. The average person's either stagnating or falling behind, and in many of the Western countries, uh, did these statistical challenges give you pause on those claim about those claims? I think what they're pointing to is um, a wider need to look at a, a range of different indicators, and to a varying degree among the uh, OECD economies the people at the lower end of the income distribution haven't been sharing in the gains of growth for some time, most extreme in, in the US, um, but it's true to some degree in all countries because uh, been, there's been much faster growth in top incomes than at the bottom. And I think it's obviously true that for many people, this, this concern has struck a real chord recently. There's all the attention being paid at the moment to Thomas Piketty's book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century. It's obviously uh, attracting a lot of attention and um, when, you, uh, when you have that kind of concern about distribution issues, then surprise, surprise, you need to look at the distribution of, of incomes and growth as well as, as the averages. And if you're looking just at, at headline GDP growth, you're looking at an average number. Yeah, the problem, though, is that when you look at a particular statistical quintile or quartile or even the median, when it's not the same people over a 30 or 40 or 20-year period, yeah. you're getting a very inaccurate picture. The question is how inaccurate. And for some reason, the people who are uh, most upset about the lack of progress of the average uh, person don't seem to take that into account. I find that uh, deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, Part of the problem is simply that household structures change so much over the last 40 and 50 years in the West that uh, that distorts measurements of median because you're changing uh, the size of the of the how you line people up essentially if you're suddenly having an increase in the divorce rate. One of the things I find interesting is that the, the trends in the top 1% and the bottom 99% are the same trends in the United States, in the UK, in Canada, uh, in many, many countries. And to me, that suggests there's got to be something, not got to be, but it, it encourages one to look for an underlying cause uh, 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 that might explain all those, not just in one country. And to me, demographics is, is, is a possible candidate uh, I guess it needs to be yeah. uh, examined, but I'd like to see other people out there examining it. I agree. I think um, the, the fact that the pattern is so similar among all the OECD economies means that you do need to um, look at, it could be demography, it could be technology, it could be globalization and the increase in the global labor supply with, with China and other countries entering into the market and the way that production has been shifted around the globe. And it could be lots of factors. And I don't think we have... Um, a, a clear enough picture of w- what's contributing um, to what extent to the patterns that we see in income inequality. And we, I don't think we have good enough data, as you're saying, on individuals as opposed to cohorts whose membership is shifting over time. So there's a lot more work to do on this. Having said that, I think it's it's true that since 2008, with the downturn in the economy, people on uh, lower incomes have... Um, not not lost their jobs to the degree that one might have feared, at least here in the UK, but have seen their real incomes decline over the past few years. So it's not surprising that they're feeling they're hard done by. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also should add that it's possible that those trends are explained by the growing political power of, say, the financial sector, which would be a a deeply disturbing uh, structural problem as opposed to a demographic change, which is possibly indicating a that the data are, are, are misleading. Those are two very different things. I just think we need to be careful about how we think about them. Let, let's turn to an issue um, 
that you talk about at some length in the book, which is uh, government spending and the role of government in the calculation of GDP. I don't mean in the sense that government bureaucrats and economists do the calculating. I mean, how do we account for government activity and GDP? So talk about uh, what are the challenges are there? The, um, the decision to include government spending in GDP is uh, relatively recent. It dates back to 1941 and the, the modern national income account. And there was no way at the time that the governments of the US and UK were going to produce statistics suggesting that government spending on the military effort was making the country worse off. It just wouldn't have been a good thing to do. And the rationale for it is that for the first time in the post-war era, government started spending collectively much more money on behalf of their population through education systems or here in the UK through the health system. So that was when it first got included. The trouble is GDP is a measure of economic activity at market prices and there's no market in government services. So how to value that was the question. And for a long time, it was done by counting up the number of people who work for the government and how much they got paid. And that gave you a figure in, in pounds or dollars, but it left you with, by definition, zero productivity in government services. So over time, statisticians have tried to be more sophisticated about how they measure what um, government services are contributing. So, for example, you, you might count the number of operations of certain types and how much would it cost to do that in the private sector or um, how much would a teacher in a private school get paid for doing the same as a teacher in a public school and, and so on. And that gives you um, some handle on whether or not there are productivity gains in, in the government sector. Um, but the very concept of productivity doesn't really work very well, I think, in lots of these services. And take, take a teacher. Um, is a teacher more productive if their pupils get higher exam results or if they, for the same money, teach more pupils than they did a year ago? And the, the whole concept of what is the productivity suddenly looks a little tricky when you've got a economy that isn't producing products. And the same thing, of course, applies to a lot of other services too. It's just much harder to think about what productivity really means when the quality of the service is just so inherently part of what the economic activity is. Yeah, I, I, Reading your book, which, which forced me to think about this, I'd never really thought about it before, that services were such a problem. It, it really is the same problem as, as, as uh, physical, tangible goods. It's just that we don't think of it that way. So we think about physical goods. We think, well, if we make more airplanes than we made last year, more televisions than we made last year, more shoes than we made last year, and if we do it with, say, the same number of people and the same amount of capital, we're more productive and the economy has grown. You're right. You can't say, well, we, we taught the same number of students, so therefore productivity is zero because maybe we teach them better. Of course, we might teach them worse. We don't know mm -hmm. which, which direction it goes. But what the services example points out, which I found so fascinating, is that, well, it's really saying that since quality is so ambiguous with services, it's, it's really difficult. We can pretend to control for it in the case of physical goods, but it's really the same problem. You're right. I think it's partly ease of measurement and, and um, monitoring. With physical goods, it is much easier you know whether your TV set works if you, if you turn it on and you can see what quality the picture is. It's just much harder with many services. 
um, many of them, the professional providing the service has an information advantage. Is my tax accountant doing a good job? Well, I have to rely on him to tell me because I'm not a tax accountant myself. Is somebody building a, a new computer system that's going to work? I probably don't know until they get to the very end of their job and, and turn it on and it does what I need it to or not. And even then, I don't know how efficient it is in terms of the energy it's using or the processing power it's using. So it's just extremely hard to monitor quality in services and uh, to a much greater degree than in, in, in products. But I think you're right. The idea is the same. And going back to the government case, uh, in theory, I mean, I think your example is very stark and very, very clear that if you double – if you use salaries as your measure of output and you double everybody's salary, obviously you don't get twice as much output in and of itself – so you say, yeah. well, as you point out, you could look at private sector comparisons, but of course the private sector is distorted by the government payments. So private sector teachers, at least in the United States, have no idea what they'd really make if there weren't – most of the teaching wasn't done through the government school system. So it's really a nasty statistical problem and you just have to do the best you can. Yeah, and, and there are lots of other judgments as well. Um, there are all kinds of peculiarities at, at what's called the production boundary. What do you include and what do you exclude from GDP? And the famous example is, um, is is housework, unpaid housework in the home. You'd pay a cleaner to do the work, but you don't pay whoever's staying at home to do it and look after the kids. One is in GDP and, and one isn't. And um, that that production boundary decision is is just a judgment that statisticians have made, mainly based on ease of measurement, as you point out. Ease of measurement, but also some peculiar assumptions. I found out that if you volunteer to read at your local school, that doesn't count in GDP. But if you volunteer to build a, a, a slide in the playground, that does count in GDP <laughs> because there's a physical product yeah. at the end. Yeah. So it's partly ease of measurement or otherwise, and it's partly just you have to make some some judgment calls. Let's go back to the uh, the wartime issue that you, that you mentioned a minute ago because it, it fascinates me. I, I'm entangled in the um, Keynes-Hack rap videos, of course, which deal with this issue. And it's an issue that mm -hmm. economists talk about all the time And when they're looking at the multiplier and, and whether war is good for the economy or not. Uh, you're suggesting from your earlier remark, at least, that people at one time actually did understand or at least believe that building tanks is not good for consumers. It, it might be good to save the country, but it doesn't yeah. make us richer. It actually makes us poorer. Talk about that and uh, how that view has seemingly evolved uh, in some direction, at least. I don't know if it's for the better. I think it's for the worse. Well, it was very, it was very clear that trade-off in the um, work of, of Keynes in the British Treasury. Um, he was very clear that, given constrained resources, they could either be used to build tanks or they could be used for domestic consumption. And the tanks, in the situation, in those circumstances, were going to win that battle, as it were. So that became a problem of how much did you have to subdue consumer demand to make it possible to divert the resources to the war effort. So he was very clear about that about that trade off. Um, I suppose there the, was a, I suppose the alternative uh, argument is is that when when resources aren't scarce, which is a strange phrase for an economist to utter, but there are of course unemployed resources at all times uh, in varying sectors and varying amounts. Various sectors in varying amounts. Um, when there's uns when they aren't scarce, then in theory, uh, government spending is free, which is what a mm -hmm. lot of American economists. I don't know how much uh, 
how many economists in the UK may have made this argument in the last five years, but many in the last five years in America have said, well, it all just, uh, it's all free because there's no opportunity cost because it just is going to stimulate the economy and help things grow. So it doesn't, there's no trade-off. It seems to me there are two trade-offs that get submerged in the way we um, look at the figures. And um, one of them is, is about um, the time horizon and whether or not, um, it doesn't matter in GDP, whether or not you're looking at something that's for consumption today, investment for tomorrow. They count the same in GDP. And that doesn't allow us to think about the trade-offs we're making about using resources now or investing them for consumption in the future. And that's true on the government side, and it's true also on, on the private sector side. If you want to think about sustainability, whether that's environmental sustainability or financial or some other kind of sustainability, those differences do matter. The, the consumption investment difference does actually matter. And that's something that seems to me to have been very confused in macroeconomic debate over the past few years. And I'm not a macroeconomist, so I'm not going to try and adjudicate over that. But I think it's, it's important to understand that difference. The other, the other distinction that gets muddied is between um, measuring economic activity currently at market prices, which is useful for macroeconomic policy, and um, measuring consumer well-being or consumer welfare in some sense. Simon Kuznets in the 30s and into, into the early 1940s uh, was very opposed to the, what became our concept of GDP, which is kind of ironic because people think of him as the father of GDP. But he definitely wanted a measure of consumer welfare. He would have argued against including government spending on tanks, um, but also against all kinds of things. He thought advertising, uh, paying for criminal lawyers and, and the police forces, they were not... Um, consumer goods, they were consumer bads. And so he wanted an aggregate measure that excluded those kinds of things. And that's the other distinction. So the time horizon, but also the activity versus welfare distinction. We cloud all of those when we talk about GDP growth. Yeah, the part about that that's strange is is it, it, it points out, as you discuss in a number of places in the book, uh, we want to kind of conflate happiness or human welfare with the size of the economy. In a certain sense, that's true. It's a good thing to, to, to bring those two ideas together. If, if you have 15 or 25 percent unemployment, the economy shrinks uh, during a, a, the Great Depression, say, or the Great Recession, that's not good. That's clearly very bad. Absolutely. On the other, on the other hand, uh, work is not an end in and of itself. If people decided to work shorter hours, which we have over the last 200 years, uh, steadily pretty much, uh, that's good because we like – Work is only a, a, a means. It's not an end. It's, sometimes it's an end, but but for many people, it's it's just a means. And as a result, the idea that somehow the economy—I mean, the economy—if we work, if we work the uh, the sixty hours a week that we worked a hundred years ago, or the seventy hours a week that we worked a hundred years ago, the economy would be a lot bigger. We wouldn't want to say, "Well, oh, that's terrible. We've lost all that output because the the pile of goods and services could be bigger." It's it's in some essential sense, a mismeasurement of what we would like to measure, which is human flourishing. And I think what you're pointing to is is, um, that there are trade-offs and it's good to measure those trade-offs. As you're saying, GDP growth is a good thing. We know that if we don't have 
2% a year or so, unemployment is going to rise. That makes people unhappy. The evidence of that is really clear. So you need growth for that. You need growth for the innovation and the new, the new products and services that people value so much. So um, growth is obviously part of what makes people happy, but there are lots of other factors too. And sometimes you want to trade them off against each other. It's not growth at any price. There's work-life balance, which you've been talking about. There are um, environmental costs of rapid growth, which are very obvious in a country like China, where you can't see out of your window when you get up in the morning. And um, that says to me that it's important to measure growth as well as you can, but it's also important to measure the other things and start to have a, a public conversation about about the trade-offs between them and what do we want to choose. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how focused we are just on the GDP number. And I think your book really points out it's it's almost a fetish. <laughs> There's something, um, you know, I, I love growth. I think growth is marvelous, but not, again, not, not for its own sake. Uh, and some would argue that, well, the reason we need 2% of GDP growth every year to avoid unemployment is because we have this population growth. We can fix that. We just need to stop uh, growing, mm-hmm. having have a smaller population, right? There are a lot of people who want just everything to, to go to some kind of steady state uh, without innovation, without growth, without in not just material goods, but also in population. In fact, would argue we should be should have a smaller population. They they would, um, and good luck to them trying to impose that on all their fellow citizens. <laughs> is my answer to that. Yeah. And if they want to stop growth, then I want to know when the next um, smartphone comes along that they want. What are they going to give up instead? Because if you want new products, you've got to give up old ones if you're not going to have any growth. And um, I think the people who say, let's, let's, let's stop the world, I want to get off, haven't thought it through. Before we move on to some more philosophical issues, I want to talk about an issue just on this measurement side that, that you've alluded to, which is uh, differences between rich and poor countries. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of some of the poorer countries, the so-called developing countries, you mentioned Ghana, Nigeria – have rebalanced their their essentially their basket of goods and services that they use to calculate price indices and, and GDP growth. And as a result, they're much richer than they were thought to be. Uh, Morton Jervin, who was a guest on this program in the past, has argued that it's not just that they don't rebalance very much. They're also just not very accurate. And they have an incentive sometimes to just lie uh, to make sure they get access to loans and other uh, goodies. Uh, what are your thoughts on those differences between the data in richer versus poorer countries? Well, I think I, I would agree with him that um, there are incentives for poorer countries um, to uh, stay poor in an official sense, even if not in a real sense, um, because of the the World Bank loans that they could ac- can get access to or not. Um, they don't often have the capacity or the resources to put into collecting the statistics. And the actual process of collecting the data is much harder in countries where the infrastructure isn't the same as it is. For example, um, running a survey of how much firms are investing, relatively easy to do in the US because you can uh, email or do online surveys now, and that capacity isn't present in um, African countries at the moment. I think the new technologies offer them a lot of hope for catching up if they put resources into it, um, being able to use smartphones to have people send data, for example, or actually using using the smartphone network data in itself to track activity 
is a possibility. So, so it, it could improve, but so far I would agree that they've not had very accurate statistics. So what do you think of this argument, which you discuss in the book about happiness? Um, in one sense, I was alluding to it. I don't, I don't really – was, I wasn't making the same point that the happy, happiness advocates make, but you know, th- they have a different critique of GDP, the people who want to focus on happiness. Talk about what that uh, claim, what their argument is and, and what you think of it. Well, the, the famous claim is, is the Easterlin paradox claim that um, if you look at the uh, level of GDP in any country, if you look at the level of incomes in any country at any one point in time, richer people are happier than poorer people, according to their own reports. If you look at it over time, it looks like getting richer in terms of GDP per capita doesn't bring about a corresponding increase in happiness. After, after Not, some minimum level. After some minimum right. level. So it increases at first and then it tails off. And I've always found this a little bit bizarre. I've never understood why you'd expect something like happiness to increase in proportion to GDP per capita. And in technical terms, you look comparing a stationary time series and non-stationary time series, and uh, over some time period, the correlation is bound to look like zero. To me, it's a bit like saying... Um, well, height and GDP aren't correlated uh, because people aren't, you know, aren't, aren't height isn't increasing in proportion with GDP per capita. Well, you wouldn't expect it to increase in the same proportion. And there is some more recent empirical work showing that if you look at GDP growth to handle a statistical issue, then there looks to be quite a tight correlation. Um, so I'm sceptical about the, the claim that people don't get any happier just because the economy is growing. I do think there's a lot of interesting research on happiness, um, it in a much more microeconomic way. Uh, we know that unemployment makes people unhappy. We know that unhappiness is strongly correlated with mental ill health. We know that noise and commuting are definitely bad for people's self-reported happiness. And these are useful because these are things that policymakers can have some hope of tackling. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of purpose to um, this kind of happiness research that I think there isn't to the macro stuff, which people just like to leap on because they don't like the idea of economics and growth really, so they, they're leaping on the happiness bandwagon. So what's, what is the implication of those kind of concerns about happiness? So you, know, you and I agree that the goal isn't to max, get happiness up to 11 uh, on a 1 to 10 scale. That, that's not really going to be feasible. Uh, what what are the implications of that? Should we be looking at these other a more diverse measure of of well being and other other activities, or should we try to live? Some people would say we should live in a less materialistic world because happiness can't go over ten on the scale. It, it, it can't go over ten, and I think we know pretty well from the psychological literature that people adjust anyway. So um, they're, they're referenced as to how happy they are will change if, if something changes in their, in their life. So um, I, I just don't think it's, it's useful to think about maximizing happiness. But I, I do think it's useful. I mean, what a luxury to live in a country that's now prosperous enough that we don't just care about um, having enough to eat or having, having warm homes. There is, um, it's a great privilege to be able to, have, to, to, be able to think about these other issues and the, and the kinds of trade-offs that might come about. So I'm, I'm in favor of 
continuing this research, asking people what, what counts to them. There's a great model, I think, in Australia. It's very interesting. They had a consultation asking people what measures would they like to see in a dashboard that wasn't just GDP growth. And it didn't turn up any big surprises, but it was things like quality of the local environment, um, leisure time, uh, convenience for getting to work, all the, all the obvious things that we know from econometric studies. And those data collected and published once a year on a traffic light system. Red, it's getting worse. Green, it's getting better. Mm. So last year, it was very clear that GDP growth had been great in Australia, and that was green, and resource depletion um, had worsened, so that was red. And actually, isn't that trade-off really clear? Australians know that they are digging up the mineral resources of the country to have GDP growth now, and they still want to carry on doing it, but but at least they know they're doing it, and I think that's a a very constructive kind of, of debate to have in the policy arena. Well, the dashboard idea really points out the crudeness of um, GDP as a single measure, right? You don't have to be a um, an environmentalist or a um, happiness advocate to to observe that just this single number is not the the be all and end all. The other part, the other problem, again from a, an Austrian perspective, is that. The implication of the collecting of the number suggests that there is this monolithic single aggregate that can tell us whether things are good or bad or not, whether they're getting better or worse, when in fact there's in America 330 or so million people, some doing better, some doing worse for all kinds of reasons that have something to do with government, nothing to do with government. And the idea that we would just have this one barometer, this one single measure, and the idea that we could maybe control it, uh, to me is is um, – it's a little bit pernicious. It's not really the healthiest um, perspective. I have to say that part of me says we shouldn't be collecting it. It's, um, it's heresy uh, for an economist to say that. But uh, <laughs> a part of me says uh, it leads to a false sense of um, control. I take it the other way and say we probably need to collect it, but we should collect other things too and publish them in the same way. And give them the same kind of status so that uh, when the numbers are published, all the commentators and journalists will look at the other numbers as well as the GDP growth. And uh, the resourcing of uh, the statisticians and, and what they're directed to put their efforts to is overwhelmingly towards GDP. And I think redressing that, putting more effort, more resources into um, long-term debt statistics and uh, natural resource statistics and other things that you might think are important in, in an indicator will be well worthwhile. Well, you know, the other thought, which is, uh, I don't know whether it's heresy or not, but if you look at what one measure of, of human well-being, which is life expectancy, it's obviously we care about the quality of life, not just the quantity of life. But in general, it seems to me the quality of life has improved tremendously for older people. Um, I look at my 83-year-old father who complains because he's not a, as good a tennis player as he used to be. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't – and he still has the knees that God gave him. If he gets in trouble, uh, a doctor can give him a new set. So in many ways, the quality of life is clearly much higher. And the quantity of life, life expectancy, certainly in the developing countries, certainly in, in both the developing and the developed countries, has improved dramatically over the last 100 years. And until the last few years, it increased every single year in the United States. So would you say that, therefore, we're, we're doing fine? 
Uh, would you argue it should get la- larger than it, you know, it should be growing more than it, than it is, right? It starts to force you to ask these questions about, you know, what kind of policy responses we'd have to any of these metrics. And my answer would be, well, I'm not so sure what the right policy responses are. I think it's um, very hard to prejudge those policy responses. And part of the reason is that things look great. And I completely agree with you about the improvements in our lifetimes in in the quality of life. And more of that coming along with new materials and medical innovations and and so on. Um, But I'm not sure whether we have a good handle on the risks, long-term costs of what we've achieved. And... So I would worry a little bit about um, global interconnectedness and global risks, for example, which we saw um, in a very alarming way in the financial crisis through the interconnectedness of of the financial system. I think there's a a lot of other measuring it would be good to do. And if I were in politics, I wouldn't want to hang everything on GDP myself because, as as you're implying, governments can't control it, uh, not in any any direct or um, predictable way. And if uh, I don't really understand why politicians are so keen to claim that they that they can, because it's hiding to nothing. Well, yeah, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> why are they so keen? Uh, they they can make it smaller. That that they're they're pretty good at. But <laughs> I don't mean to suggest, therefore, that everything the government does, is, you know, is bad for the economy or bad for productivity. Obviously, there are many many things the government does. Uh, well or better even than the private sector. I'm not an anarchist. Some of my listeners are. They'll disagree with me. But I think there's some things the government does that it does fine. Uh, maybe it could be done better by the private sector, but it's at least it's close. But um, I think it's a natural human tendency to want to claim that you can steer things, improve you know, everybody's life as if, as if that was an actual reality, and it clearly it isn't. Well, I, I kind of understand wanting to claim that you can make things better in a general sense. Wanting to claim that you can make things better by increasing GDP growth just seems to me um, a very silly way to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of statistics measuring things. I'd like to think that we um, are about to have the capacity to do a lot more really good measuring of, of things that we don't have a good handle on at the moment. Is there something in the way that the regulatory authorities are starting to monitor data in the financial markets that will help us work out those kinds of um, interconnectedness dangers or long-term dangers that we know we didn't understand very well before is one example. Understanding um, are there specific natural resources where we're close to um, depleting them to a, a dangerous degree, you know, whether, whether that be water supply in China or the atmosphere in China or, or, or something else. There's, there's, a lot of measuring, there's a lot of measuring to be done and there are new tools coming along to do the measuring. So I think we could have a much more... Um, fruitful, interesting, and philosophical public debate about, you know, what is the purpose of all these policymakers doing things and claiming to do things? Yeah, I'm afraid I, I used to feel that way. I, I think that's um, might be a little too romantic for me. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to side with Nassim Taleb, who, this is a paraphrase, but I think it might be an actual quote, big data means bigger mistakes. You know, we look at the financial modeling. It's gotten so much more sophisticated compared to 50 or 30, even 20 years ago. And it's more dangerous to me. I don't see any improvement in our ability to avoid crises. They seem to be coming more often, more frequently. 
Now, it could be the world's gotten more complicated, and despite our better understanding, it hasn't kept up with the complexity of reality. But I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that our our hubris in in claiming we can understand these things and control them is is uh, might be the real source of the problem. Well, you might be right, but I'm going to stick to optimism today because the sun is shining. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I, I want to now turn to some. I don't know whether you want to call these philosophical or theoretical questions. Um, you talk about this in, in in the book, the challenge of what you wrote about before in the weightless your book, the weightless economy. So many aspects of our you know, what our, our so called economic life today are different than they were twenty and thirty and fifty years ago. The internet. Uh, I like. I want to use the example of Wikipedia. So we create this thing, and I think it's it's fascinating to me. I hadn't thought about it until I read your book. This really is the this question you raise of the production frontier, and and Wikipedia is like housework. So you've got all yeah. this unpaid labor producing this gloriously wonderful thing. I don't know whether it's better than clean clothes or not, or food on the table that's a well cooked meal, but you have this glorious product that adds almost nothing to GDP. Yeah. So how does and that how does that affect our understanding of economic well-being? It, it, I think there's a difference between the economic well-being aspect of it and the productiveness of the economy part. We're, really people are taking their time away from potentially paid activity, which is measured, to do unpaid stuff that's fabulous. And this um goes to the difference between um consumer surplus or welfare and and what you can actually measure in GDP. There are lots of free digital goods and if all the people producing them found a way of charging for them and making money, that would go, go straight into GDP. And some of it does already, you know, to, to the extent that electricity is used and the bills are paid, um, then that, that already makes a contribution to GDP. But there are now quite quite large activities that are wonderful um, that are outside that production boundary, um, Skype or um, you know, um, Evernote, all these, all these, all econ talk, all these fantastic free podcasts. Um, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's it's a great improvement in consumer well-being, and maybe some of that will move into GDP, and and then maybe some of it won't. And it's just like. The housework boundary, where if you pay somebody to do your clean, it's in, and if you don't, but you do it yourself, it's out. And that's just—I think that's just one of those things. Uh, the example I was thinking of—it's um, a really silly example, but it's the kind of thing I would talk about in a in a, in a class. It, suppose I'm a fabulous whistler, and I like to whistle, so I go around and I whistle, and it's so beautiful that I'm the Pied Piper of whistling. People just. But I'm not going to take people down to the river. Uh, we're just going to – I'm going to walk around whistling and people are going to follow me and enjoy listening. And um, that has nothing to do with GDP, but it makes life better. And it seems to me that so much – at least in the – I want to say in the developing – in the developed world, but maybe it's it's much more widespread than we might think. So much of what the modern economy or the way we spend our time would be a better way to say it is about beauty. It was unimaginable 20 years ago because the technology didn't exist, but it was also unimaginable 50 and 100 years ago because we were too poor to follow somebody around whistling. So we mm. watch all this viral stuff on the net, 
or we listen to Econ Talk or we just we take a course at uh, at Coursera or at Udacity because we're just interested in it. And and it's free. We don't pay for it. Uh, a lot of that stuff is really improving the quality of life, but it doesn't – it's disconnected from the productivity of the economy. And if I'm unemployed, the fact that I can listen to Great Whistling isn't much of a comfort. So it seems to me there's sort of two things going on here, which we've been hinting at all through this conversation, which is we care about whether the economy is working well, but we we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that how well the economy works is the be-all and end-all of, of human meaningfulness and satisfaction and pleasure. I think it uh, partly goes back to the old concept of, of the gift economy. And um, there's just an important part of the way people uh, transact with each other or relate to each other that is, is non-monetary. And uh, part of what's going on, particularly with the online goods, is definitely in that, in that gift economy tradition. But then part of it is more um, the kind of thing that Adam Smith wrote about in the theory of moral sentiments, about the importance of relations between people and um, the, the way that formed a bedrock for the wealth creating, the economic activities, and that you should see the, the, the growth in the economy in the context of that wider set of human relationships. So I want to close with a little bit of a, with a challenge for you, which we've mentioned a couple times, but I want you to expand on a little bit. You've been in the government. You know some of the challenges that working in a government office, some of those challenges. I'm going to put you in charge. Uh, in America, you'd be, uh, you'd be uh, the Secretary of Commerce, which collects the uh, – which is the Bureau of Economic Affairs as part of it that collects the national income accounts and measures GDP. And – we didn't get into the details, and mercifully, you don't go into them in great detail in the book either about the, the incredible amount of, of human effort that goes into actually counting these things. We make, we've made it sound like, hey, just go out and count, and it's imperfect. But of course, just the collecting of the data is, is a major uh, human effort. I'm mm. going to put you in charge. Uh, you can do whatever you want. You can keep it as it is. You can expand it. You can improve the hedonics, or you can collect some other stuff, um, and uh, – You've got total authority to do that. What do you think uh, the government should be measuring and what would you do with it um, going into the the 21st uh, – as we go into the 21st century here? I would definitely move towards um, a dashboard of indicators. I think it helps to have agreement between countries about what to collect in those because um, that's – being able to benchmark against other countries is really useful information for – both policymakers and citizens. So I'd want it to be an international effort. And I would take some of the effort away from um, making GDP statistics ever more complicated because I think the, there's, a, there's a real diminishing return to what's happening with the GDP statistics. And I'd refocus effort on, on, on dashboards and particularly on the trade-offs that are, that are much harder to notice. It's easy to know um, when you're working harder to make more money it's much harder to get a handle on the time horizon questions, the, the, the broad sustainability questions. How much are you putting on taxpayers tomorrow or how much are you using resources up that won't be available tomorrow to be able to consume as you are today? So that, that would be my uh, um, that would be my decision. And let me give you a harder question. Uh, it's uh, 
It's the summer of 2016, and the United States is in a um, political campaign for the presidency. Uh, there won't be an incumbent running. There could be, but to some extent, the Demo- whoever runs on the Democratic ticket will have uh, a measure of uh, economic responsibility, as will the Republicans in some dimension because economy is complex. And you can throw blame around in lots of different ways. What advice would you give to a journalist or a voter about how to think about economic performance? We evaluate our presidential candidates in America a lot, really on just two – but many ways on two dimensions, economics and foreign policy. On the economic side, uh, GDP plays a huge role. Did it go up? Did it go up yeah. enough? Uh, the other obvious variables are unemployment and inflation. People will look at those. But are you suggesting – you think we should look at a richer menu – at least in terms of what presidential responsibility should be, or do you think it should be narrower? I think um, as a voter, well, let me talk about my own country. We'll have an election too. My question is, what prospects have these guys given my children? What kind of leadership have they shown? Are they just responding to short-term pressure and headlines, or have they actually had some vision about what kind of country they wanted to be in in 10 years' time when my kids will be having to earn their job. And that's not just about GDP growth. It is about are there, you know, is there growth and are there jobs available? But it's also what are they going to have to pay in taxes? Uh, What's going to have happened to their environment? What kind of education have they been given to prepare them for whatever the world is going to look like? And those are hard questions. And the chances of anybody getting the answers right are, are pretty low. But I would hope that's the kind of thing that people go into politics for. Well, it's not, we'll close on that optimistic note. Uh, it's my ma- optimism day. Yeah, to match, to match your earlier one. My guest today has been Diane Coyle. Diane, thanks so much for being part of Econ Talk. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.